and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. I am Doth here, Chris. He is Doth here. Uh, this is the first in our series of Get Me Another Star Wars bonus episodes. Now, if you haven't already listened to our 10-part Get Me Another Star Wars series in which we examine the science fiction films that came out in the decade after the original Star Wars and were influenced by it in one way or another, don't worry. This is a great jumping on point for the show. But if you enjoy this episode, I highly recommend going back and listening to our full Get Me Another Star Wars series. In these bonus episodes, which we're planning to do from time to time, we'll explore some films that fall outside of the initial wave that we covered in the series. They may be from genres beyond science fiction, or outside of the time frame that we explored, or simply they may feature other interesting things we think are worth discussing. This week, we'll look at two fantasy films from 1981, both of which drew from the same wells of mythology and folklore which George Lucas tapped into when he created Star Wars. It's fair to say that the commercial success of Star Wars spurred on the development of quite a few fantasy films, including these two. Our first movie today is the crowning achievement in the legendary career of special effects artist Ray Harryhausen, Clash of the Titans. Provide him with suitable weapons, weapons of divine temper, a helmet, a shield, a sword. Find and fulfill your destiny. The myth, the magic, the mystery, the majesty. Destroy Argos. Let loose the last of the Titans. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer presents Clash of the Titans. The good, the evil, the danger, the daring. How may a mortal man face and defeat the Kraken? Clash of the Titans. Starring Harry Hamlin as Perseus, Judy Balker as Andromeda, Burgess Meredith, Maggie Smith, Ursula Andress, Claire Bloom, Sean Phillips, Flora Robeson, and Florence Olivier as Zeus. Before history, beyond imagination, Clash of the Titans. Before we get into Clash of the Titans specifically, I want to talk a little bit about a true cinema legend Ray Harryhausen. Harryhausen's career goes back to 1949's Mighty Joe Young, when he worked under Willis O'Brien, who created the special effects for King Kong, the movie that inspired Harryhausen to become a filmmaker. Over the years, he created the special effects for such films as Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, Jason and the Argonauts, and many more. And he helped pioneer the technique of stop-motion animation. And his movies are just memorable for their craftsmanship, their imagination, and their pure cinema magic. Uh, Rob, I know you are also a big Ray Harryhausen fan. Um, I did have a television set that got the ABC Sunday Night Movie, Chris. And so <laughs> I'm very much a Ray Harryhausen fan. Uh, I think all the, the Sinbad movies and Jason and the Argonauts were on, oh. I, I think, by law every other week. 
Yeah. They're so good. And they are they are just they're they are genuinely just they're genuinely magical. They're they're just so much fun. They're the kind of thing you can watch with the whole family because you know it was they were made a lot of them were made in the 50s, 60s, 70s, so they you know they don't have any you know too objectionable content. Um, but you know it's and this was his final film, Clash of the Titans, which came out in 1981, was written by Beverly Cross, directed by Desmond Davis, and produced by Charles Schneer and and Ray Harryhausen. Uh, and it was released by MGM after Harryhausen's longtime studio partner Columbia passed on the project. It was Harryhausen's second film to draw from Greek mythology after 1963's Jason and the Argonauts. Uh, it tells the story of Perseus who is exiled as a child from the city of Argus and seeks to marry the beautiful princess Andromeda. In order to do so, he must battle with the demonic Calibus, he comes face to face with the terrifying Medusa, and he must defeat the mighty Kraken. Uh, it stars Harry Hamlin, Judy Bulker, Burgess Meredith, Cyan Phillips. Uh, as the gods of Olympus, it has Lawrence Olivier, Mal Maggie Smith, Claire Bloom, Ursula Andrus. Uh, you also have an appearance by Pat Roach as Hephaestes, who uh, might be best remembered as the German mechanic who fights Indiana Jones uh, near the Flying Wing in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He also fought James Bond in Never Say Never Again. Uh, and uh, it also, uh, as a side note, they originally wanted to cast John Gielgud as Pierce, uh, Perseus's mentor, Ammon, but the studio didn't want such a heavily British cast. Uh, in any case, you cannot go wrong with Burgess Meredith. Um, I, on a personal note, this is one of two movies that I, I actually can remember being told no, that I wanted to see and my parents did not let me go see because it was, it was, yeah, deemed too scary. Were they anti-Hellenic? What's going on here? No, Chris? I think uh... they just thought it looked too scary. <laughs> and, and for the record, the other film came out the same summer and it was Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, and sure enough, Raiders of the Lost Ark came back out because they re-released Raiders of the Lost Ark, I think, in 82 or 83. And I did see it, and it did give me nightmares for a month, particularly the Well of the Souls sequence. Uh, but this eventually I saw, you know, a couple of years later on, on HBO or whatever. And, uh, you know, honestly, I just, I love this movie from when I was a kid, and I still love it uh, to this day. Uh, it's, just a, it's just a delight. It's, it's an odd movie, but it's, it's just a delight. Yeah, this was a big one for me as a kid as well. I'm, and I don't think I'm hallucinating this. I had a Perseus action figure with the shield and the sword. Uh, I don't believe there was a, a Medusa head. Spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> spoiler alert for um, mythology that yeah. is thousands <laughs> of years old. Uh, <laughs> uh, I had a Calibus action figure, Was the, and it was the only yes. one... Like, it was the only one from Clash of the Titans. I had, like, you know, I had a lot of Star Wars action figures, a lot of G.I. Joe. Uh, but then I had, like, a couple of random ones from, ran like, I had the Daggett from Battlestar Galactica. I had Admiral Kirk in his dress whites from Star Trek, the motion picture. And I had Calibus from Clash of the Titans, but it was my only one. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, before we jump into the movie proper and talking about it and its relationship to Star Wars... I have to get this in, and this is half for my wife, uh, sure. who is uh, who was is Greek, born born in Greece, Greek American. Uh, the conceit that if you are doing anything where people are, it's an English language filmed production of something about ancient Greece that 
oh, that means everyone should have a British accent. <laughs> there are there are still Greek people in the world, Chris, and some of them are actually actors. This is an un, apparently an unknown thing. Um, how the British accent in America equates to Greek. I mean, look, I know the BBC does a lot of stuff, but come on, man. Like, use your head. <laughs> you know, honestly, I mean, you know, on, on one level, I get Laurence Olivier being cast as Zeus. But if it was me, I might have had Telly Savalas in that role. Oh, come on. It's a natural. Obvious. I mean, you're, you know, if you're looking for a for a Greek-American actor, I mean, that's, that's, that's... Who loves you, baby? Yeah, Zeus. He he does. He loves everybody. He, he loves everyone. Into... He, lo- he literally <laughs> <Yes>. loves everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, it, it it's it's totally you know like the the sort of the BBC kind of you know uh, classically trained actors as uh, as you know as as figures of mythology it works but we could have seen a little bit more you know variation with with that casting um uh, you know i i love uh, i love you know there's there's a couple there's a lot to love in this but first of all the the creature design of the in this movie is is phenomenal uh and again this is all ray harryhausen's genius um you know this feels like a victory lap for harryhausen and you know is the you know i think I think he saw that that the times were changing and that the way special effects were being done was changing, um, but it was like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this victory lap. I mean, you have Calibus, which is an animation and live action hybrid. You have the Vulture. You have Bubo, the mechanical owl, uh, who is my wife's favorite character. Uh, the Scorpions, the two headed dog, uh, the the flying horse Pegasus, the Gorgon Medusa, which is a triumph, and of course. The Kraken. Um, oh yeah, and what what's interesting to me when you talk about the special effects changing because this leads into a whole thing about what era this movie feels like it's from. But that mm-hmm. that's setting that aside for the moment. Um, special effects had been changing, and this feels like a um, the pinnacle of being able to use modern techniques to do the old style. Yes, and what's funny is in a couple years you get what is the most loving homage in one of the biggest films of 1983, uh, right? Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi, with, yeah, with 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 the 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 Rancor. I almost I blanked yeah. on the, on I'm like, wait, what what's that? Yeah, the Rancor is totally, you know, drawing from this type of thing. But of course Star Wars mixed a lot of different um, you know, techniques and whatnot that were were and and developed its own techniques. But they still, even the the a year before they had the Tauntaun in uh, Empire Strikes Back is another another stop motion uh, uh, creature from Star Wars. So they they were still using these techniques, but you could feel that um, you know, kind of the winds were shifting. And obviously, by you know another decade later, you'd get to the computer generated uh, special effects, and which would kind of reach a turning point with Terminator Two. And, uh, of course, Jurassic Park, which, you know, is traditionally the type of film that Ray Harryhausen would would do. I mean, he, you know, he had done dinosaurs for uh, for a number of pictures, including uh, One Million Years B.C. in the Valley of Gwangi. Uh, But, you know, now it's like, oh, well, they were able to do uh, to take it to the next level. But this feels like this feels like the victory lap. This feels like the marathon or running in the stadium. And you know what? Hey, we're going to we're going to. We're gonna play for the crowd one more time, and uh, and it's it's delightful. Um, 
That's such interesting. It's interesting to me that one of the things I note about this movie is how they don't hold the Kraken till the very end. Like, they show the Kraken (laughs) fairly early. And I'm just like, oh, if you were making this movie today, you wouldn't see the Kraken until the very end. I don't... I. My memories of the remake from the from 2011 are very sort of vague and and I can't remember if they did that but that movie just doesn't stick in my mind at all. Uh, it's one of those remakes that just sort of instantly fades. But I feel like oh they, they really went in all in on showing the Kraken early and I loved it. Yeah, and I uh, I hadn't seen this in a long time and for for the longest time on this rewatch I thought that we were entering a uh, a misremembered quote territory. You know, like how in Casablanca, Bogey yeah. never says, play it again, Sam. Right. It's uh, something like, play it, Sam. You played it for her, you can play it for me. In the canonical Sherlock Holmes, he never says, elementary, my dear Watson. He often says elementary. He occasionally refers to my dear Watson. But in the in the original Hulk Conan Doyle, he never puts the two together. And in Clash of the Titans, what winds up happening is, you have many, many instances from the first time the Kraken is mentioned, and then when it's brought up again in the middle, everyone is saying, let loose the Kraken. Yes. You know, like, I'm going to let loose the Kraken if they don't behave or whatever, right? That's that's how Zeus talks. Um, and I thought, oh no, we they never say release the Kraken. But I can assure you... At the end of the film, for the climax, they yes. do not let loose the Kraken. They release the Kraken. So, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I, I had I went through the same mental process rewatching it. It had been a couple of years. <laughs> uh, but I was like, they do say it, right? I mean, it's... Um, yeah, it's it, this is such an interesting film because it, it does feel like a movie sitting at, at kind of the, the pivot point of changing cinema. Like, it's... It, it it honestly it, it decidedly feels a little like a throwback in in some ways to an earlier time like it's you know it, it, in some ways it's it's of the moment but in some ways it feels like it's you know uh you know I often say that you know when you have a it's when you have a, a changing era it's not just simply that everything stops and then like a new era starts you have two eras overlapping you know you have uh you know when you're you know, you have those couple of years when you're changing from one decade to another where you're kind of on the cusp and you have some stuff that's from the previous era that's that's kind of ending and winding down. You have some stuff that's from the new era that's beginning. And this feels like it's it's overlapping. You know, this came out the same year as Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it, it feels decidedly more, you know, from an earlier time than Raiders, which is kind of pushing the envelope forward in terms of pacing and the way the story is told. Yeah, and you could argue that both of those movies, you know, Star Wars had some sort of influence on Clash and Raiders, hearkening back to a different, uh, an earlier era of adventure and trying to introduce it for a modern audience or reintroduce it. And um, Star Wars, as we talked about, really did update. It wasn't an old adventure serial. It updated it in a big, big way. It was in the spirit and tone of those things, but it really put a whole new spin and obviously technically did things that no one had been able to do before. Raiders does a similar thing. Yeah. Where it's hearkening back to a different kind of old adventure serial, uh, old adventure movies, and it really does update it. And it, you know, for that time, it was so very modern, even while being a period piece. Clash 
feels like the best adventure movie from 1968 I've ever seen. Yes. Uh, and I yeah. and, and I don't that's not a knock on the film. It just feels old fashioned um in that way. Yeah, no. And and it's not even it's, it's not just it's not the special effects because again, Harryhausen's no. doing what Harryhausen does and and you could see that Star Wars was using some of the same te- same techniques at the time, but what's what feels more dated is the pacing. The movie is almost leisurely and it has this kind of episodic, you know, this episodic pace that it, it feels decidedly pre-Star Wars. Uh, what I thought was so interesting re-watching it was that it feels like the movie is almost completely wrapped up halfway through. Like everything is, is basically completely settled by the halfway mark and then Cassiopeia has to go and open her big mouth. And then that starts, that kicks off the second half where you have the, the, the search for the, you know, you have to, he has to find the uh, Medusa, you know, the head and, and gets the eye in order to get to Medusa. It's all, um, that whole second half though, everything from the first half is kind of done. Yeah, and you know, some of this has to do with the source material, obviously, mm-hmm. but you, when you make a movie, you are allowed to adapt. Sure. Um, and that's where I, I think you're right, where it does often feel old fashioned and decidedly pre star Wars, as opposed to post star Wars, uh, which is funny because this is literally a mythic hero's journey. This oh, is, yeah. this is, this is in some ways the stuff that Joseph Campbell studied and was drawing his uh source you know his his theories from exactly and and that's like the character of perseus very much feels like he shares qualities with that of luke skywalker i mean both are orphaned young men with a special lineage and a destiny the find and fulfill your destiny is a very kind of you know like that's the that's the theme of the movie that that is stated um you know directly by zeus you find and fulfill your destiny like that's all of this is is you know star wars was drawing from this same you know mythological folklore tradition that that obviously clash of the titans is is adapting directly you know it's like oh we're doing the the sort of the direct adaptation of that um it's 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 funny because it's not unlike uh, there was a movie out very recently called The Northman, uh, filmed by Robert Eggers, which I liked a lot. Um, but I you know I watched it and said, oh well, this feels a lot like Hamlet. Well, sure enough, when I did a little bit more digging, it's like, oh, this is based on an old Norse uh, you know mythological story that later you know it, it, you know was retold and, and told again and eventually made its way to Shakespeare and Shakespeare kind of retold it as Hamlet and so it's like it's all drawing from the same pool uh there was a lot more there was way more blood and guts in the Northmen than there generally is in your average production of Hamlet uh but I ha- I, I chalk that up to uh you know the 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 uh the director's vision uh, of a particular project yeah yeah, and uh, uh, quick aside, the best version of Hamlet is uh, Strange Brew, the Mackenzie Brothers film. <laughs> uh, but that aside, um, <laughs> one of the big differences uh, between Luke Skywalker and this version of Perseus is that, and look, again, this is a lot to do with the source material. Oh, wait, it, wait let me that, guess. Is it is it his gorgeous hair? Is it Harry Hamlin's gorgeous hair? Well, I mean... First of all, I will say Harry Hamlin is the best looking human being in this film. <laughs> like he is prettier than any wow. of the women. I mean, that's yeah. not a knock on the women. 
No, he is, he is literally. Ursula Andress is in this movie for goodness sake, but geez, Harry Hamlin, he looks great. He is a Greek statue come to life, uh, you know. And anyway, that's I mean, perfectly cast, and he's he's very yeah. charming and 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 has charisma on screen and all of that. But story wise, uh, at least in the beginning, I don't know, at least like Act One, if not further. Um, Perseus is just kind of a pawn that gets played with, and he's really not active at all. It's the gods who are active. Now, look, again, this is often what the myth is. Uh, And so this is one of the fun things about Greek mythology, is that the gods are portrayed with very human qualities. They're petty, they're jealous, they're vain, they're, you know, they're boastful. Um, They they make mistakes just like us, which is uh, just a far, far more interesting view of if you're having, you know, mythological gods. Uh, It certainly gives you more drama to play. Yeah. But uh, it's very different. Well, yeah. I mean, in the beginning, you have that he's got that chessboard uh, not the chessboard, but he's got that that stadium where he literally takes figures um, and, and, and moves them around and moves them from different places. You literally see the gods playing with human fate and destiny, you know, as, as you know, you know, there's the great bit where Calibus, the, the statue, a little statue of Calibus transforms in silhouette into his, into his kind of misshapen form that we see him in, in the movie. And it's terrifically done. And, and a very interesting directorial choice, I think in that, and or script choice as well, both, um, if I'm not mistaken, we never see Calibos live action before his transformation. We never Correct. see what he looks like normally. We only see that in doll form yep. in Zeus's hand. And then when we get to finally see Calibos for real on screen, he has already been transformed into what? A very pan-like uh Yeah, uh, it's like it's, it's like an evil pan. And uh it's it's interesting. Um, apparently they originally intended for Calibus to be solely a, uh, a, a stop motion figure. He was going to have no dialogue. He was going to be fully animated, but then later they decided to add dialogue and that necessitated casting an actor for the close-ups. So it's an actor in makeup in the close-ups and it's for the distant shots, like when he's fighting with Perseus in the swamps, that's uh, that's stop motion. It's a re- I think it works really well and it's a really interesting kind of, uh, you know, blend of techniques there yeah and the the calibos stuff in general is some of my some of my favorite in the in the movie because uh you often get a much more ethereal quality you the fog machines cranked up you get like weird dissolves as he's like you know when he's uh coming for uh andromeda yeah uh with the turkey vulture uh, oh yeah who flies (laughs) Who flies into the palace? Andromeda has locked herself away because no man can have her. Uh, but as she's sleeping at night, the turkey vulture with a giant gilded cage, gilded comes cage. down, <laughs> literal gilded cage, uh, flies down with the cage and then uh, to her balcony, and then like her essence, her spirit comes out of her body, drawn yeah. uh, in a kind of uh, trance, like a trance, presumably state. by the the evil magic of. Uh, I mean, I would think Thetis is helping Calibos out here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thetis being uh, his mom, uh, yeah. who's unhappy about uh, Zeus not uh, not showing mercy to Calibos. But I will say, Calibos hunted down every last winged horse, uh, yeah. leaving only Pegasus left. So, you know, 
I think the ASPCA might be uh, might be mad at Calabos as well. Yeah, no, it's it, honestly, and, and, and while there are changes to the details of some of these Greek myth stories, I, I honestly think there's no movie that I can think of that is true to the spirit of of Greek mythology as I grew up reading it than than this film. I mean, even if you know, again, the details of Greek myth because it was an oral tradition change from one version of the story to another. So that doesn't bother me. But it really it catches the spirit of you know these mortals are only um, you know really at the at the whim of of forces that they don't they know nothing about. And that's that is very much a common theme, and and you 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 get it on full display here. Perseus is one of the few who's able to kind of, you know, again with the help of of Zeus, his his father, you know, is able to sort of, you know, chart his own destiny. Yeah, the gods too. When you compare them to the Empire, it's almost yeah. like the gods of the Empire and the Rebellion, frankly, uh, yeah. because you have different factions. But uh, the Empire in Star Wars just feels like this totally solid force pun intended uh where you get everything's just all the ducks are all in a row right and that makes them very formidable whereas what i do love about this is that the gods are so there's so much backbite backstabbing and just they're they're very unpredictable uh frankly which gives it more of that chaotic feeling which is a different kind of danger uh you know perseus is both counting on and afraid of what the gods will do. And that's, yeah. uh, I think, just a much... It's a very interesting dynamic. Yeah. And, I mean, there's a great moment where um, Zeus... I, I forget exactly what order he gives. Uh, oh, 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 he's telling Athena to that he wants Athena to send her owl to to go oh, and yeah. as a gift to Perseus. And he, and he looks... He's kind of got this smile and he's... It is my wish. Like, as if, you know... It's my wish. I'm I'm framing it as a wish, but don't make me make it more than a wish, or else you know there'll be a thunderbolt. Oh, but then Athena does not comply. Yeah. No, it's interesting. She <laughs> but she kind of complies. She complies like yes. enough that that he 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 uh, he is satisfied. I guess he never we never hear more of it. But that leads us to Bubo, the mechanical owl, uh, who is one of the more you know Star Wars esque. Because there's something about Bubo that feels kind of like R2-D2-esque. Like, it's a, if R2-D2 was a, a mechanical bird, he would be Bubo. Yeah, the, the, the beeps do not sound like bird beeps. They 100% sound like uh, droid beeps, for yeah. sure. Uh, I mean, I just... And, and apparently, Harryhausen did say that the idea for Bubo predated Star Wars, but I can't help but think there's some influence there, I mean, it's it's you know, and and in a in a good way, in a positive way, because I love Bubo. Uh, one of the things I disliked about the remake was uh, they 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 tossed Bubo off as a as a kind of gag, where he like he pulls him out of a bag and then chucks him away. Um, you know, it's uh, let's talk a little bit about the centerpiece of the movie, uh, and and it's I think it's truly like the sort of the it's the sequence that that everybody really remembers which is the battle with medusa the battle with medusa is just incredible everything about it is fantastic first of all the design of medusa um is 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 what's interesting about the design of medusa is they reinvented the idea of the gorgon the gorgon as a creature traditionally was a, a woman with snakes for hair who could turn people to stone but they merged 
the the Medusa of mythology with a um, with a, a mythological creature called a Lamia, where it is a woman uh, who is from a woman from the the waist up and a snake from the waist down, and that was all Harryhausen kind of taking these myths and putting them together to create something that we hadn't seen before, and that. I mean that sequence in when they go into the in Medusa's lair is incredible. Like the set is bathed in this flickering firelight, and you see, you know you you hear Medusa before you see her, and it's and the build up to it is fantastic. Uh, we talked about that. There's elements of this movie and pacing and whatnot that are a little dated, but the 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 tension of that Medusa sequence is in no way dated at all. It's it's fantastic. And um, just, you know, uh, because the Gorgon, if you look at it directly, you will turn to stone. And that gives you the nice tension where when Perseus is coming in there, he can only try to catch glimpses in the reflection of his shield. And so he cannot look directly. And he's trying to sneak around, hiding behind pillars as she's slithering around, coming for him. And you get uh, really great, uh, you know, cross-cutting. Uh, between the two and in a way where they're not necessarily they're not really cheating the location necessarily they're not cheating the geography of it but it is cut in a way where you're never quite sure exactly how well you at a point at the climax of it you get sure but you're never quite sure early on how what is the distance between the two how exactly how much danger is perseus in in this moment Yes. Uh, because the the depth just isn't there, uh, which is really kind of replicating Perseus's limited view a little bit. Uh, whether yeah, that's no, intentional I, or it, not, who knows? But yeah, it's incredibly well done, and the way that scene builds, the tension slowly gets ratcheted up little by little. Like there's you, the, the when they first get to her island, and you start seeing these statues, which again, Greek with Greek, you know, uh, you know, uh, antiquity statues are common, but you start to realize, oh. Oh, these are people she's turned to stone. And it's, I don't, there's not one moment where you kind of realize that. It sort of happens gradually and it's just like, oh my God. It's so, it's so good. And then the reveal of Medusa, where she's pulling herself along with her hands and she's got this serpentine body behind her and a rattlesnake tail, which you can hear. And it's honestly, the, the Medusa sequence in this movie to me is breathtaking. It is Harryhausen's masterpiece i think even more so than uh the battling of the skeletons uh from i think the the seventh voyage of sinbad which is one of the ones that uh you know often uh, you know he gets uh you know held up as one of his great sequences i think this is i think this is a masterpiece it's incredible and in fact if mo- the movie has a weak point it's that it's a little downhill after the medusa confrontation like it's you know yeah you have the kraken but i don't think the kraken nearly is as exciting as Medusa. The Medusa one, it, it just gives me shivers. Um, yeah, especially the Kraken is undercut a little bit at the end um, in that we literally know Perseus has it in the bag. Yeah. Because he's got Medusa's head Burr in a bump. bag. And we know he can just show it to the Kraken and it's uh, game over. So it is there. there is less dramatic tension there. Um, even though, obviously... You, any audience goes into a movie like this, you know the hero's going to win uh, because that's what this type of thing does. But even still, there's in-the-moment kind of tension that you can get yeah. caught up in. There's less of it in, in the Kraken sequence. Although, it 
you are seeing essentially sea king kong uh yeah. <laughs> and and so it kind of makes up for it in that end because it's just yeah cool. i you know honestly i i feel like the, the king kong analogy with you know her chain to the rock i i mean you know you'd think i've seen king kong a million times i've seen Clash of Titans a million times. You think I would have I would have put those together, but sometimes I don't see the the obvious that's right in front of me. Uh, but yeah, I mean it's 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 fantastic. Uh, I have a little bit of historical background about the Kraken, Rob. I, uh, I I have done a little homework. The term Kraken comes from Scandinavian folklore. Uh, it is traditionally envisioned as a giant squid type creature. Uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies actually feature a more traditional style kraken. Uh, in the original Greek myth, the creature uh, that menaces Andromeda is called a cetus. And the term cetacean comes from this word. Uh, and it's depicted more as a sea serpent. Um, the kraken from Clash of the Titan features as a distinct visual similarity to another Harryhausen creature, the the Venusian creature from the 1957 film, 20 Million Miles to Earth. And if you look at the faces of the of the Venusian creature and the Kraken, they are very similar. There's also, um, even before that, Harryhausen did a, some test footage for an adaptation of the War of the Worlds, which never was, was never done. In fact, it was, this was before the 1953 George Powell version. And the Martian has, again, that same facial features. So it's interesting, there's a direct lineage from one of Harryhausen's earliest projects, which is the, the unrealized War of the Worlds, all the way uh, to his final feature film uh, with Clash of the Titans. And he he clearly had this image in his mind and and you see it kind of come back and again. I'll I'll post um, the, the some of the test footage for War of the Worlds on our, our Twitter feed because it's, it is terrific and it makes me a little, you know, it's like, oh, I wonder. I, I love the George Powell 1953 film, but I wonder what Ray Harryhausen's The War of the Worlds might have been like. Um, yeah, it's a uh, this movie. I, this movie's a joy. I, again, I can't recommend enough. Not just this film, but all of Harryhausen's work. Uh, they're all available on Blu-ray, and and many of them, I'm sure, are on streaming. And they just it, it is um, uh, this guy. He was he was just one of the greats. And 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 they are his films uh, just hold up as as terrific adventure movies, uh, you know. Which which again, uh, George Lucas has said how important the films of Ray Harryhausen was to 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 Star Wars. You know, the, these are the films that informed um, you know Star Wars. You know, before it happened. And here we have sort of his his victory lap with Clash of the Titans. Yeah, I mean, uh, I still this movie was a joy. Uh, I uh, recaptured a lot of the. Uh, the, the feelings from watching it when I, when I was a kid, um, even though obviously the perspective's a bit different uh, these days, but um, it is, uh, you know, and it's it, it's for what it's doing. It, it really is, in addition to all of the fun, uh, kind of a technical triumph when you look at all of the oh, techniques. absolutely. How much, how much more seamless they are than even his earlier work, which was very well done too. Oh yeah, now and and it's uh, I'll leave, well as we as we leave behind Clash of the Titans and move to our next film, uh, I'll leave you with this quote from Ray Harryhausen: "The cinema is made for fantasy," and I think that is absolutely true. And and you know it's it's uh, this is this is a joyous example of that. Uh, from the fantastic worlds of Ray Harryhausen, we move to a very different kind of fantasy film uh, based on *Le Morte d'Arthur*. Thomas Mallory's 15th century chronicle 
of the tales of the legendary King Arthur. This is John Borman's Excalibur. A wizard's ancient spell. Into the eyes of the dragon and in despair. And the lust of a lord. I must have her. One night with her. Give birth to an empire. Behold the sword of power. Excalibur! The future has taken root in the present. It is done. Orion Pictures presents John Borman's Excalibur. Knights of the Round Table, we shall always come together in a circle to hear and tell of deeds good and great. And I will marry! Don't you know me, Merlin? Because I'm a creature like you. Their magic is Merlin. Are you just a dream? To some. A nightmare to others! Their king is Arthur. You are my husband. I must be king first. Their power is Excalibur. I swear eternal faith to our king. Sir Lancelot, you will be my champion. What is that? Greatest quality of knighthood. Truth. Where hides evil then? <laughs> Where you never expected. I protest my innocence. Were I not king, I would make you pay with your life. <laughs> Wizards, kings, warriors, queens, swords, sorcery, and desire. Forged of splendor and magic, where future meets past, flesh meets steel, and the only fear is the pain of love. Excalibur, sword of power, sword of kings. To put it simply, Rob, John Borman's 1981 Excalibur is the most definitive, best, serious King Arthur movie ever made, or maybe that ever will be made. Now, obviously, we all love Monty Python and the Holy Grail, uh, and that's doing a different thing. And and they're a great double feature, actually. Uh, but, but John Borman's Excalibur, to me, is one of those movies that is just... It, it, it's it's pure magic in a very different way than than the works of Harryhausen. It is just amazing. Absolutely, uh, uh, hard agree. Um, one of the things that I love about Borman's Excalibur is that it it's funny. You're working with a very old story, even though it's a yes. you know version of it. But this has such a like there this is another kind of dream logic film almost yes. for me where this this film captures uh two things about the arthurian legends and look you can these elements are there and and some people play up other areas and and that's the fun of seeing different adaptations sure but the kind of the ethereal magic of it all and the mysteriousness of it is is on overdrive in this movie and additionally, the other element, which I 
I just don't think we see in many Arthur, Arthur Legend filmed entertainment is the pre-round table. Yeah. Showing kind of just how how um, cruel and hopeless yes. the world was before the order of Arthur's reign came in. Uh, which is very important, I think, for when it's in that that order is in trouble later on. Oh, but yeah. there, it's not like a fun. Oh, guys are fighting all the time. It's not like a macho, which I've seen before. Like, sure. oh, it's lawless, like the old west, and isn't this kind of cool though too? No, uh, the pre-Arthur world in this movie is like a nightmare. Yeah, and, and and the 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 halls of Cornwall's castle, which is where a lot of that pre, you know the sort of the preamble dealing with Uther Pendragon takes place, is positively prehistoric. I mean, it looks like they're they're in a cave, um, and and it's it, there's well we're going to get into that, but it's it's just the the the, the helmet like there's details in this movie that are just the helmets of Uther Pendragon and and the other warriors in that opening time are all shaped like animals. It is it is it is very much a pagan world. And when Arthur comes and eventually claims the throne of Britain, you know, I mean, you, you see of the, the the visual texture of the world changes, and it's it's part of what makes Borman so brilliant as a as a director. John Borman uh, is a British director who whose filmography includes movies like Point Blank, Deliverance, Zardoz, The Emerald Forest, Hope and Glory, uh, a movie called The General, which is a favorite of mine about notable gangster, notable Irish gangster Martin Cahill, uh, as well as Exorcist to the Heretic, which I'm not not that big of a fan of. Uh, but Borman has got an incredible visual style, and in all of those films, even the ones I don't like, like Exorcist Two. He always swings for the fences. He's never he's never trying to 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 get just a you know a ground rule double. He is always trying to hit a home run, and sometimes it doesn't go well. Like Exorcist Two to me is honestly a terrible movie, but he's really trying to do something. Oh, I was just gonna say that with, with all of that, this as part of that Borman doing such magical work. I mean, what is amazing, and obviously some of this is the story too, but. It's like Excalibur becomes this perfect melding of like folk horror, heavy metal, oh, yeah. and softcore pornography that no one ever knew the Arthurian legends needed. And it's I'm not sure how it all how he fit it all together, but it, it fits and works just beautifully. It is all of those things, and I love and 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 as a fan of all of those things, I I yes. am I am for I I you know I, I just this movie's amazing, but it's got a fascinating backstory. I'd like to talk about a little bit. It was written by Borman and Rospero Pallenberg, and the project started its life in the late 60s as a King Arthur script. Now, you say, well, Chris, that's obvious. It's a King Arthur movie. Naturally, it would start as a King Arthur script, but it takes a big detour in the middle of its development. Borman took his Arthur script to United Artists, who didn't buy it, but they asked if Borman and Pallenberg would be interested in adapting a, a novel that they had recently acquired the rights to. J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. And Borman and Pallenberg poured a lot of their Arthur ideas uh, into this, this early 70s adaptation of The Lord of the Rings, which at the time was being envisioned as one long film with an intermission. Uh, in the end, budgetary concerns pushed United Artists to go in a different direction and do an animated adaptation, which eventually became the 1978 Ralph Bashke uh, film. 
But Borman's Lord of the Rings, not unlike another massive unrealized film adaptation of the 1970s that we've discussed on the show, Alejandro Jardowarski's Dune, uh, it's both projects were too large and too expensive to ever be realized, but they are tantalizing uh, cinematic roads not taken. Uh, And after Borman was let go from Lord of the Rings, he pivoted back to the idea of an Arthur film. And that became Excalibur. And some of the early design work that was done for his Lord of the Rings was carried over to Excalibur. So it gives us a sense of what Borman's Middle Earth might have looked like. Uh, you know, you talk about those early sequences where you have, uh, you know, Uther Pendragon. And, you know, I mean, I'm looking at the Castle of Cornwall. I'm thinking, well, well, that would have been his Barador. You know, it's it's mythical and it's primeval, uh, but with a sense of romance and beauty. And it's amazing. Uh, Excalibur stars Nigel Terry as King Arthur, Nicole Williamson as Merlin, as well as Helen Mirren, Nicholas Clay, Sherry Lungi, Patrick Stewart, Gabriel Byrne, and Liam Neeson. It was filmed entirely on location in Ireland, and it's a gorgeous film. It is just absolutely beautiful. Yeah, for sure. I'm thinking even of, um, there is that one shot later on, this is later, later in the film, where uh, the world has been Aaron because Arthur has been uh you know sick right yeah he, we'll, he's we'll been get wounded. into why he has a wound he's, yeah he has a wound uh and so the magic of his reign is left the the land is becoming barren it's all gray but then when Arthur rides back out again oh and you God. see the the group is coming through the barren field and as the king who is returning passes by you see the color come back and it's such an amazing visual moment. I mean, it's it's not subtle, but it is beautiful oh, no. and just the artistry is amazing. It reminds me of something like Hitchcock would do, where you're yeah. like, it's it is the the visual is telling you the story that and you know and the fantastic score, which by the way is this is uh, such oh, yes. such a wonderful score. Oh, it's uh, amazing. But, the, but those moments that Borman has are are just great in this movie. Yeah, the score for this movie was composed by Trevor Jones, who also did other 80s fantasy films such as The Dark Crystal and Time Bandits. And and speaking of that scene in particular, it, it is the best use in any movie ever of Carl Orloff's O Fortuna from Carmina Burana. It's an incredible piece of music. It's frequently used in movies, but it will never be better used than in John Borman's Excalibur. Um... Yeah, I, there's just, there's so many, there's so much depth to this movie. This is one of those movies that I've, I've seen countless times, and every time I see it, uh, I, I see more and more. Um, you know, and, and you talked earlier about how the, 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 the early sequences of the film, which deal with Arthur's father, Uther Pendragon, and, and kind of, well, there's, we'll get to this a little bit later, but th- this film is, a, is very much um, concerned with the idea of original sin. It's not necessarily the Christian idea of original sin. It's got its own idea. It's got its own concept of original sin. Um, but you you have this this era where everything feels like it is of blood and earth, and it's like the, the everything feels so it, it is is primeval and primordial. And then into this world, you have Excalibur, the sword of power, which. There is something about the sword as an effect that is incredible because it gives off this kind of greenish glow. And it, it everything things in this movie glow 
in a, in a way that feels genuinely supernatural. And as a, as a film effect, I have no idea how they did. It is amazing. And Excalibur, there's like a, it, there's almost a tone to it. Like a, there's an audible tone that comes from the sword, which is not all that different from the monolith in 2001, A Space Odyssey. And perhaps they are not all that different in what they do and are. Like they, it, it's, um, oh, it's so, it's so interesting. Uh, along with Excalibur, how they treat the lady in the lake is also okay. similarly, uh, visually striking and mysterious and a bit like the way the lady in the lake is presented in this film is um it's borderline what samara from the ring you're like you're you're not quite sure that you actually want to meet up with the lady in the lake because it feels like a dangerous thing even though she is on the side of good but there is kind of a dangerous powerfulness uh because you're you, like what does she want and it's kind of treated that way as opposed to oh here's the helpful magical friend for you right and the closest thing that, that sort of comes to it is is Galadriel in in, in Kate Blanchett's Galadriel mm-hmm. in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings where you know I mean she is in a sense on your side she is helping you but at the same time there's a there's a a quality of such ethereal power that you know and and uh, you know the the scene where Galadriel's tempted by the ring is sort of the brilliant. You know, uh, you, uh, instead of a instead of a dark lord, you would have a queen as beautiful and terrible as the dawn. And and using the word terrible in its true, you know, true sense of filling one with with awe and terror. And and the Lady of the Lake, while she doesn't she doesn't have as big of a role, she appears very sparingly it feels very much of the same of a cloth with uh with galadriel um yeah i i well let's talk a little bit about some of the the performances nigel terry plays king arthur and he gives an amazing performance one of the best uh screen aging of in any movie like he, yeah. he ages over the course of like 30 years and they do it very subtly where it doesn't feel like oh he's slathering on the age makeup it's just you know, it's a beard, you know, from and, and, and some lines around his face, a slight graying of the hair. And it really is all in Terry's performance. I was going to say, yeah, the the naivete that he starts with. Yeah. And then to swing all the way toward the end of the film with the world weary Arthur. This is even after he has come back. Yeah. Because um, he know, even at that point, he is coming and setting things right. But he kind of knows that you know it's it's not going to be the the fairy tale happy ending for him at that point it's too far gone that last scene where he goes and visits um uh guinevere and who is now a nun yeah i mean and and you could you you, he knows he knows everything that's going to happen and and he has accepted that fate but you can see the pain of it uh, and it's it's just again everything about this movie is so expertly done including you know those performances uh they are they are great um well, let's talk a little bit about um, let's talk a little bit about original sin, Rob, um, because I think this movie yeah. is is focused on the idea of the sin that that predates uh, one's birth, and in fact, Arthur's conception is one of sin uh, in the film. Uther Pendragon, who is recently, he's a warlord, has recently become king, is ruling the land, but not only say falls in love, but falls in lust with his ally Cornwall's 
uh, wife, Ygrain. And so he he goes to Merlin and says, I need I need this woman, uh, you know, make it happen for me. Um, and what what Merlin does is he changes uh, Uther into the image of the Duke of Cornwall. So he goes into uh, Ygraine's bedchamber, you know, and and he looks like her husband, and um, and and Uther lies with her. And and truth be told, let's just be honest, rapes Ygraine. I mean, he is he is having sex with her under false pretenses. It is. It is nothing short of a rape, uh, and it is it is out of that that um, that encounter that Arthur will be conceived. And it's interesting, Morgana, who is already who is who is the daughter of Cornwall and and Igraine, who is already a little girl at this point, witnesses this act, and you you can tell that she sees uh, Uther for what he really is, uh, and and the whole movie is in some ways dealing with. It takes Arthur's life to expunge that that original sin of his father. He did nothing wrong, but uh, he has to he has to set right the things that were done in the past, the wrongs that were done in the past. Yeah, you you very much cannot escape the past in this movie, and in other instances are doomed to repeat it because uh, you do yes. have the cycle of violence happening where later in the film, yes. Morgana is the one who uses. Uh, the same trick the charm of making the charm of making where she then appears to Arthur as uh, as Guinevere. Guinevere and tricks him into impregnating her with the future king that she hopes to uh, usurp Arthur later and that on that is more she yes uh, who has the shiniest armor you will ever see in oh any he's got that film. that gold armor that gold with the with yeah. the, the, the helmet that looks like it's um, you know, kind of a, a, a Greek mythological figure. Um, yeah, and, and Mordred, who is Arthur's son slash nephew, uh, you know, is essentially represents the part of Arthur that was that was conceived in this original sin, and Arthur has to destroy that that um, you know that part of him. You know, he has to destroy, he has to kill his own son slash nephew in order to expunge the the sin that that entered the world before he even arrived and it's uh i mean there's just there, there's layers and levels to this um that i just i think it's incredible um there's also a ton of water and baptismal in, imagery in this movie like a replete i mean first of all you know the lady of the lake i mean the 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 sword of excalibur comes from water um, but there's also the scene, it, it, you know, both where it comes from and its ultimate fate. Percival's quest where he finds the grail uh, is essentially, you know, he nearly drowns, uh, you know, and then he has this sort of dream imagery. And also Arthur's knighting. Can we talk about one of my favorite scenes in any film ever is when Arthur is knighted because Arthur has already drawn the sword from the stone as you know as he does in in mythology and 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 there's some of the 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 lords of the land are against him some are for him he goes to 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 uh, free the castle uh, of uh uh, play the Patrick Stewart's character uh, has a has a castle. He goes, he's got to stop the 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 attack on the castle. And one of his rivals, you know, he he kind of they're they're fighting and he gets the better of him and he says, you know, I'll give you mercy and uh, and and. You have this moment where, well, how can you give me mercy? You're not even a knight. 
Swear faith to me, and you shall have mercy. I need battle lords such as you, and never not swear faith to a squire. You're right. I'm not yet a knight. You, Irians, will knight me. Then as knight tonight, I can't offer you mercy. What's this? What's this? In the name of God, St. Michael and St. George, I give you the right to bear arms and the power to meet justice. That duty I will solemnly obey as knight and king. I never saw this. Rise, King Arthur. I am your humble knight, and I swear allegiance to the courage in your veins. So strong it is, its source must be Uther Pendragon. I doubt you no more. And and there's something truly magical in that moment where it's Urians takes the sword from Arthur and you know could he is he going to chop his head off is he going to and he and it is it is an incredible film moment that will stay with me forever. Um yeah, it's just it's just great. Um yeah. yeah. And uh yeah. Uh, another thing that's great in this movie, Chris, split diopter shot yes! in Morgana's cave with the grail when Percival uh, tries to get it the first time uh, from her. Uh, and really, that's all there is to it. I just had to call oh, out yeah. split diopter shot. It's uh, absolutely. One. Rob, um, um, you've known me for a long time. You've known me oh, for yeah. a long time. I don't need to tell you how I feel about Helen Mirren as Morgana. <laughs> in Excalibur. Like, no, it's, you uh, don't. It's pressing all the right buttons. It's, uh, I don't know what it is with evil women, I swear to God. Uh, my wife is going to be like, what? well, what's wrong with you? Um, and at the same time, she's going to agree. Um, yeah, it, it's it's the, the primitive primeval world, uh, you know, gives way to the, once Arthur establishes Camelot and Christianity starts to take over. There's a lot of stuff in this movie about pagan religions giving way to Christianity. Uh, Merlin yes. even says yep. the one god comes to drive out the many gods, and as the the movie you know as as civilization grows, they are lulled into a false sense of security, uh, and it's in some ways it's like Clash of the Titans where you get to the midpoint and it feels like things are relatively settled and then someone has to go and open their big fat mouth in this case it's arthur asking if we defeated evil and i'm just watching i'm like come on man as soon as you ask if you've defeated evil you know you haven't um and then the second half of this movie is replete with the dream imagery that we were talking about um, oh yeah lancelot has a fight against himself which feels like a precursor to the Superman Clark Kent fight in Superman three. Like it's it's uh, there's there's the, the sequence in the cave uh, with the coils mm -hmm. of the dragon. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean all of this 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 imagery is fantastic. And when you're talking about part of the the theme of this film is transferring uh, or transitioning from the pagan world into the Christian world in mm -hmm. in Britain. 
one of the things that I love about it is that it has a very, you know, um, I mean, obviously I wasn't there, but from what I understand, kind of that older view of magic, right? I mean, it, it's not the modern view. It's not even the Lord of the Rings view where it's like, well, there's good magic and bad magic, but, you know, Gandalf really has no, it's like, well, yes, if I if it's a magic moment, I'm going to wield my magic. No problem, right? Uh, this movie is much more the, uh, I mean, Merlin is a mo- walking monkey's paw. Let's just call it out, right? <laughs> you you never want to ask Merlin to do anything because no. you're going to get it and you are going to pay, man. Um, from the, uh, you know, what, the Uther, uh, you know, with his lust. Then yep. you get uh, Arthur in the uh, with Merlin bringing back Lancelot. That bites him in the ass real yeah, bad. Yeah, yeah. And... And then uh, Merlin uh, takes it upon himself to train Morgana. Well, good, good job there, buddy. Really, yeah. that whole idea of, you know, if you use magic in an, you know, A, to do anything negative, but B, even not so, there is a cost. And I feel mm. that that is a very old world view of the magic that um, yeah. a, a lot of modern Arthur takes if you still have a magical Merlin. Yeah, a lot of them do a completely non-magic Arthur. You know, the the grounded Arthur. And I, I feel like they've never quite pulled it off. I think there's something you could do. Like, I think that's a possibility, mm-hmm. but I feel like it's never sure. quite been pulled off. But I, I do love that the magic is backfires in ways you don't, or at least the characters don't expect. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's and that's part of that, and a you know, which I love, and you know, it's time for that world to move on by the end of this film. Yeah, and it's interesting. Like the again, talking about the the, the sort of the the imagery of the Grail, which is a you know a chalice uh, to 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 hold water, but that can cleanse cleanse the king and cleanse the land. I never noticed until this most recent rewatching that Lancelot has the Grail on his armor. Like, it, he, he actually, the grail is, like, emblazoned on Lancelot's armor. I never noticed it before, and I'm just like... Oh, yeah. This movie's amazing. Um, yeah, he, the final act the is... purest among us, right? Yeah, he's exactly. the purest among us and, until he's not. Until um, he's not. Uh, and then the final act is set in this world of pestilence and famine. You know, because Arthur is, is sick. You know, again, sickened by, in a sense his own original sin which predates even his life uh, but because and it's the theme of the film the land and the king are one once the grail heals arthur it's the the scene that you talked about earlier we see the land returning to life uh, and it's so again talking it's arthur and his knights ride out to defend what was and the dream of what could be, and the the in this the, their armor is now like polished silver, and it's it's amazing. And Mordred, it's the 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 thing that's so visually distinct. Mordred him wears this sleek golden armor, but his army looks like it came from the beginning of the movie. It it has this primeval like all the the guys in Mordred's army are are you know, straight back from the primeval era from before Arthur became king and and, and sort of changed the land. Uh, and it's no coincidence that, that they take up residence in Cornwall's castle, which is where the early part of the movie takes place. Yeah, and those knights, uh, both both Mordred's and the, the original earlier knights, um, they really are 
they're nothing like what we would think of knights. They're literally guys with armor and swords, but they are really roving bandits and thugs. They have uncontrollable urges. Their urges are terrible. And there is absolutely no honor or code. It is literally just about who is the strongest and can grab power. And that is the world that Arthur sought to change and did for a time. But the seeds of that world, original sin, the past, uh, has, uh, you know, infected uh, things. And he has to, he kind of has to go back and deal with what he tried to sweep under the rug before. Because you can't do that. No, you, you eventually you have to, to to face it, you know, head on, and uh, and that's you know that's you know that's what this movie is about. You know, uh, more um, Mordred, you know, even though he himself is is beautiful to look at, represents a slide back into this primeval chaos, and uh, you know, and and the knights they know they're not fighting for today; they're fighting for what may be in the future. I think Arthur's got a line of, uh, yeah, where he says, I, I was I was not born to be a man. Um, I am the stuff of future memory. And it's just, it's so great because, you know, at the end, you know, while, while Mordred's all, all ultimately defeated, uh, the landscape that is left behind is is bleak and scarred. It is a wasteland. It almost looks like some of the, the pictures you see of the battlefields of World War One, where it's completely stripped of vegetation and trees. But because Excalibur has been preserved in the lake, there is hope for renewal and rebirth. And that one day the king may come again. Uh, this movie has got... It, 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 to me, it's, it, it's, it's John Borman's crowning achievement. I know I said that, that earlier to that, that Clash of Titans was, was Harryhausen's crowning achievement. Uh, and I think this is Borman's crowning achievement. Uh, he, made a number, he made a lot of other really fascinating films. But this is the one where sort of all of these things come together uh, to create something that is, is unique and gorgeous and has not been... Uh, has never really been, I think topped it's it's just it's it's the best arthur movie that's ever been and maybe ever will be because i i don't see anybody just kind of having that vision that borman had and the and the layers and depth that this movie that this movie brings um you know it's we we picked these two movies to go together for for a reason and and while they both they aren't trying to specifically imitate star wars all of these stories you know the the Greek mythology, the Arthur legends, uh, you know, as well as Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, for that matter, draw from the same mythological well. And there's a reason that Persis and Arthur and Luke Skywalker feel like they're all cut from the same cloth. I kept thinking, watching the the the, the scenes from late in the movie where it's the older Arthur, how much it felt like older Luke from the Last Jedi, sort of this this the sadness. That you know the dream that he had will never fully be realized in his life, uh, but there is the hope for the future, and that's uh, you know again I think that's one of the themes of the Last Jedi that is often misinterpreted by the people who misinterpret that movie. Um, I don't want to open that door, but like you know it's 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 the the same reason the final scene of Excalibur with Arthur being carried off to Avalon feels much the same as Frodo sailing off to the Undying Lands. At the end of the Lord of the Rings, um, and and it was the success of Star Wars that revived interest in this type of mythological based stories, because at its core, that's what Star Wars is. Uh, it's mythic tales told with the trapping of science fiction, uh, and uh, and that's why we we wanted to do an episode where we talked about some of those, 
you know, some of those other other, you know, kind of pure fantasy movies. And this movie, I mean, Excalibur, which came out in the spring of 81, really set the tone for 80s fantasy. Uh, we'll talk in more depth about other 80s fantasy films. We're going to do a couple more bonus episodes. And eventually we are going to do Get Me Another Conan, The Barbarian, which which will, uh, you know, which will deal with the sword and sorcery boom of the 1980s, which led to a lot of some gr- really great movies, some not so great, but really fascinating stuff. Uh, but 80s fantasy is a special kind of thing. And this is kind of the beginning of it, uh, in particular with Excalibur. Yeah, I feel in the 80s you finally got there technologically where you could make movies that were the art on vans. And yeah. it's just yes. it's just so wonderful. Yes. Um yeah, absolutely. Which again, that that we would never have reached that technical point if not for the work of Ray Harryhausen through the 50s, 60s and 70s bending the curve so others could then take the torch and kind of continue on. You know, Ray Harryhausen is is an Arthurian figure who who will not see the world that he he will he create, but there is hope for the future. Actually, he lived a very long life even after he retired, so he actually did get to see much of the world that he ushered in, and and I think that's that's wonderful as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, both of these films are great, um, and and you know, I mean, I can't recommend them enough. Uh, Excalibur is just uh, will always be a favorite. Uh, which I think brings us to the end of this special bonus episode. And we hope you've enjoyed it. We plan to do another one of these again soon. Uh, But before that, we'll be kicking off our next series, Get Me Another, Boys in the Hood, in just two weeks. Join us then, because we have some interesting days ahead, some interesting films, very different from our Star Wars series, uh, which is sort of the point, is that each each film, each series that we do is kind of its own thing and, and will deal with a completely different set of films. It's, it's, uh, it allows us to kind of uh, jump from one genre to another in a, in, a, in a really exciting way. So thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing, following us on Twitter and Instagram at GetMeAnotherPod. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies, tell people that you have neutral feelings about as well. And we hope to see you in two weeks as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another.